This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to The Conversation. I'm Benjamin Dixon, host of The Benjamin Dixon Show. Joining us today is Raphael Casal and Benjamin Earl Turner. They're both writers, producers. Uh, Raphael is a showrunner for the newly premiered show Blind Spotting, and Benjamin Earl Turner plays the role of Earl in Blind Spotting. Gentlemen, thank you so much for joining us today. How are you? Thanks for having us, man. We're great. Awesome. Yeah, yeah. I, want, um, I want the audience to kind of get to know a, a little bit about it. It just premiered this past Sunday, so congratulations on that. Um, I've had a chance to see portions of it, and we have a preview of it actually that we want to show the audience so that they can kind of get a mindset of what this show is about. Let's take a look at it. Baby, I'm so sorry. Phantom flushing these. Do you want me to get you a toothbrush or a toilet? Uh, no, I'm going to summer camp, baby. I'm going to jail. I don't know. What is our online banking password? Baby, I'm not going to yell that on the street. Happy New Year. Like I called my mom. She said you and Sean can move over there with her and Trish. Hello? Hey! Are you staying? I'm going to figure it out. I can't survive too many days with your sister. I just bought a new grill. Hey, girls. Sounded like a new grill. Why are you so naked all the time? Wearing pants in the house is stupid, okay? I feel liberated, okay? I want to feel free at home. What? Well, how do you feel at work then? Expensive. Killing my yeah. I did everything. Yeah. Oh my God! I kicked my mom. Pleading guilty is terrible legal advice. You gotta say you're sorry. Don't admit to nothing, kid. You a 32-year-old baby daddy in jail who almost got her pockets ran until I put you on my credits. Yeah, you real grown ash. Um, I'm just taking a look. It, it's it's an interesting show, and I'm still stuck on your opening line. Like you're like, I'm not I'm not going to camp. I'm going to jail. Tell us about the show. Yeah, I mean the show is um is like an extend in extending the universe of a film that uh, me and my main collaborator, Davi Diggs, uh, did in 2017 of the same name. And um, it really uh, picks off uh, Jasmine Cephas Jones' character, Ashley Rose, um, and sort of sets her off on her own story. And it begins on uh, on New Year's and two, New Year's Eve on 2018, uh, when she comes home to find her partner of 12 years, Miles, and the father of their son, Sean, getting dragged off to jail. Mm. Um, and we don't quite know why. And it sort of means that she has to go and move in with, uh, with his family in the community that she that she grew up in, um, and sort her life out as a temporarily single mom, navigating what it is to be on the outside when uh, when someone that you love is being incarcerated. Mm. Um, and then we introduce this whole new cast of characters that surround her life, um, and Ben Ben Turner here plays uh, Earl, one of those one of those leading characters. Yeah, Ben, tell us about the character Earl. Yeah, Earl is um, sort of the He's the representation really of um, the carceral state after somebody leaves it. I think a lot of times we think of prison as sort of the moment of being incarcerated and then the moment you walk out. And oftentimes we see it depicted that way. 
will see the guy in front of the prison. Um, they catch the cab or the old friend comes to get them. But the reality is there's all these extending uh, circumstances. And so Earl is uh, starting his year of house arrest after having been incarcerated for a year. Um, and a lot of the meditation of that character is trying to figure out um, what it looks like for someone to be wearing the trauma of a year long sentence for something that ultimately uh, is no longer illegal, right? That they've gone to jail for a, a weed charge that no longer mm. they would be charged by based on current laws and standards. Um, and so Earl's is trying to navigate all of this in a new space and in a lot of ways avoid the recidivism rates that plague folks who, who end up going to jail. Mm. Uh, Raphael, I want to ask you about the substance of the show because even in just hearing you discuss it, both of you discuss it just now, um, there's also a seriousness, a heaviness to the show. Commentary about the carceral state, commentary about the uh, prison industrial complex. Tell me about some of the messages uh, that you're hoping people can get and receive from the show. I don't know that we invest too much time in trying to sort of feed people their vegetables through a TV show that is ultimately like a it's a it's a comedy, right? It is like a half hour sitcom. But I think what we establish with the film, which we continue to sort of do with the show, is to not exhort, not ignore the circumstances of the world that the show is taking place in, right? Mm. And the reality is that in a country that has the highest incarceration rate in the world and the biggest sort of you know population of incarcerated people. That is just like a factor of life. It is it is something that if there's you know whatever 2.1 million people incarcerated, how many other people is that affecting just by that being our sons and daughters and fathers and you know and family members and and community members and so I think we just are dropping into a world that doesn't pretend like that's not happening and so it has an inherent um, uh, reaction to a to an existing parameter that yeah. all Americans live under. Yeah. It's just it's a reflection of the reality. Ben, speaking to that that exact point, I'm curious as to your character and as you started to convey some of these circumstances that exist even after your experience in the carceral state. What were some of the things that were either surprising to you or caused you to pause and reflect in terms of the character and the challenges that character was facing? Whether it's something that it mirrored real life or something that you may have heard of. Yeah, I think the the big thing that the character forced me to do was look at how difficult it is to maintain humanity um, one, once someone has gone into uh, the prison industrial complex. When you come out the other side and throughout the whole process, uh, the process sort of in order to work, one of the things it demands is stripping a person of their humanity. And so I think what was difficult was trying to um, not just maintain that humanity, but make a point that the humanity is part and parcel of uh, every person who goes through that that process, who has to go to prison. Um, so often, I think when we see folks who are um, formerly incarcerated on screen, they play a very particular sort of stereotype or trope, and we lose a lot of the humanity that they inherently have. Mm. So what was challenging for me was to maintain it, was to say, okay, here's a black character who. Um, we assume might operate in a certain way, but really, how can I expand the vision of this character so that they uh, they actually are full and encompassing the reality of a person and not sort of uh, this empty bin that is on display in order to sort of communicate a point or, or to make a joke or anything like that. Mm. Some of the challenges that you all faced during this um, 
this filming was from the pandemic. How did you guys work around that and how did that impact the release? I think less less of a workaround and more just had to work through it. I mean, mm-hmm. we you know, we were given the opportunity to make the show you know, really just during the dates that the pandemic was at its worst. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think we we had to sort of take into account all the parameters and adjust the show accordingly. Things like you can't have more than four people in a car without the doors open. You can't, you know, or really at four, you can't close the doors. We can't have more than five people in a room without proper ventilation and like removable walls. Somebody coughs or sneezes on set in any way that feels as though it could be symptomatic, which really is any any cough or sneeze. Yeah. You have to break for an hour. We're in shields and masks and we're being swabbed and prodded every day. And, and you're constantly aware that everyone a part of the production is risking their lives and their, their their lives and their health and their family's health that they're going home to every day just to be on the show. And you also can't do big like community scenes like you want to. You can't just be like, everybody pull up on Friday, we're gonna do the big like farmer's market scene. Can't do that just for like, and we're all learning this too, because you know, Ben and I are we're new to television. This is something that we're just figuring out. The permitting and the insurance and all these things that it takes to do a big production in this way means that there are all these constraints, especially when there's health concerns. So I think we really had to, you know, pare down the show in a lot of ways to make it manageable for the assignment. You know, and then I think the hope here is that we'll we'll get into to the opportunity to do a second season in a very different climate, and we'll get to sort of expand the world accordingly. But this had to stay really small and really contained in order for it to uh, to be possible. Mm. Um, with the few minutes that we have left, I would just I would be interested in you sharing with the audience what's the, what, what is the one thing that you hope that they take away um, from watching this series? Um, actually, both of you, Raphael and and Ben, I would love to hear that. Yeah, I I know for me, um, the number one thing with with any piece of work that I think we've worked on is is I hope that people want more a, a ravenous desire to see a season two and a season three and to stay with these characters. And I, I think that's the answer because um, whatever people get from it, the art part, that well, that's up to them. And and I want to make sure that that stays up to the people who are watching. Um, and so that's kind of kind of my hope for for the show. I think the um, I think we are we're trying to push the envelope of what of what television has been traditionally thought of as. I think the conventions that were that were activating in this show, this poetic verse towards the camera, these this idea that the that the dancers and the movement are front and center as opposed to sort of like propped behind the leads, but are very much like characters in themselves, or just things that like we just haven't really seen much on television. And so I think um I'm exci- I'm excited for people to start to think of the medium of television as much broader and with much more sort of possibility and scope. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I, I would uh, I would love to to see that enthusiasm into a season two be because we're sh- we're we're shifting and messing with the format a bit in a way that people love. Mm-hmm. The name of the show is Blind Spotting. It just premiered this past Sunday, and we are here with Rafael Casal and Benjamin Earl Turner. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. And thank you. Welcome back to the conversation. I'm Benjamin Dixon, host of the Benjamin Dixon Show. Joining us now is Laura Packard. She is founder of Healthcare Voices, healthcarevoices.org. Laura, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for inviting me. 
the pleasure is ours. Um, the conversation is about healthcare, the Affordable Care Act, and the importance um, that it played, the role that it plays for so many Americans. Tell us about what's going on with it and why we need to bring some attention to that matter right now. Well, there's a case before the Supreme Court right now that could strike down part or the entire law. And this case has been working its way through the courts over the past few years. And now it's finally here, a decision is imminent. And I'm a stage four cancer survivor and the Affordable Care Act has saved my life. So I am one of the millions of Americans that could be affected. Oh, absolutely. I. Um, you know there has been there have been absolutely relentless attacks on Obamacare, the Affordable Care Act, since it was signed into law. And this is it seems like every so many years there's a challenge to it. We had the previous Supreme Court challenge to it when Justice John Roberts surprised a few people. Tell us about this particular challenge and the balance of power on the court and some of the possible outcomes. Well, this particular court case came about because the Republicans tried and failed to repeal the Affordable Care Act in 2017. But what they did instead was they struck down the individual mandate as a part of the Trump tax scam at the end of 2017. So when they did that, they set into place this possible court case. The people are arguing that that the Affordable Care Act should be stricken down entirely. That once the mandate was removed, the entire law should go away. So that is the conservative legal argument. Scholars don't seem to think that has any weight, but the Supreme Court is its own thing. So they can do whatever they want and we have no control over that. Yeah, they have a level of commitment to repealing the Affordable Care Act, which has always been sort of, Strange to me, considering that it is a conservative piece of legislation. The brainchild of the Heritage Foundation in many ways, first put into practice by Mitt Romney in Massachusetts, Romney Care. So this is a conservative piece of legislation, but they have not, I mean, we've been past, it's been in law since 2010, and they're still fighting against it when it's one of their own ideas. Why? What is the purpose for them to try to hurt so many people and their commitment to this? Well, I think. Partly, it's because it was passed into law by it was led by President Obama, and there are many conservative legislators that just can't stand anything that Obama did for the obvious reasons. Mm-hmm. And also, part of how the Affordable Care Act is funded is by tax on the rich and corporations. So if they manage to destroy it, they give a great big fat tax break to their fat cat donors. And you know they're committed to that above anything else. <laughs> you mentioned um, um, the, the connections and the interconnectivity of the different players here. Um, I'm curious as to how the new bench, the the new court, um, the the new balance with Amy Coney Barrett. Uh, I'm interested in th- in seeing n- not predictions because you said the the Supreme Court it is its own thing. But I am curious, what are some of the possible outcomes that you are calculating for right now? 
Well, this is why so many of us tried to stop Brett Kavanaugh from getting on the Supreme Court and Amy Coney Barrett in turn, because we knew that they were being put into place to destroy this this law and many others, such as your right to reproductive care. But we we don't know what they're going to do. It seems from the argument phase that they are looking skeptically on the conservative position on this. But again, as we saw with Bush v. Gore, if the Supreme Court wants to do something, they will just make up the legal argument to go with it. Along, along with a little phrase that says, never do this again though, right? With Gore versus Bush. And so you're right, they're their own entity and they have taken the prerogative to set the course of this country on their own merits before. So we can't be surprised if this goes south. If it does, we're talking about tens of millions of Americans losing their health care. Speak about that. Well, 31 million Americans get their health care right now through the Affordable Care Act. Those numbers just came out a couple days ago. But it isn't just those 31 million, it's 135 million Americans have pre existing conditions. And so, whether you have your care through the Affordable Care Act or not, you might have to worry about annual and lifetime limits coming back on your employer's insurance. Or if your employer ever lets you go and you have to use the ACA for your insurance, then what do you do? As well as all the essential health benefits that were rolled into the ACA that people now take for granted, you know, getting free primary care, your kids being able to stay on your insurance until they turn 26, all of those things could be gone if they strike down the entire law. What do we do? Because there's not a lot of pressure that we can place on the courts by design. But if someone's feeling hopeless and helpless in response to this, not only this, because this seems to just be a prelude to what is going to potentially happen around Roe versus Wade, what what are the people to do? Well, the courts matter. So going forward, make sure that you vote for people that will work for healthcare instead of trying to take it away. If this happens, if they strike down part or all of the Affordable Care Act, then Congress needs to act. And it's going to be tough. I mean, we need to have gotten rid of the filibuster yesterday. Mm-hmm. But there, there may be things that Congress can do in an emergency to shore it back up. And we have to do those things because we can't strip away healthcare from tens of millions of Americans. And let's talk about the politics of it, right? I mean, because I mean, the, there's a, a moral dilemma here, and you would think that we would understand why it's important for sick and dying people to be able to have health care, but that's a whole different conversation. Politically, putting 31 million people off of their insurance, even if it's two years before the next election, is completely political malpractice. But they're so committed to this that they're willing to take it on the chin. Do you think that's because? They are confident in their conviction on working on behalf of the rich, or are they confident in their conviction that their supporters are dumb? I'm sorry, but that's kind of, I hate to pose it like that, but it came out. Well, I think a lot of people don't get a full picture of the news. If you only listen to media in a right-wing talk show bubble or Fox News or you know OANN or Newsmax, you're not getting the full story. And so 
all of these politicians vote to take away your health care, and then they get on TV and say they're protecting your health care. So mm. if nobody fact checks their record, the average voter, how are they to know? Mm. Mm. And this is how they're they're able to get away with doing so many things that are going to be detrimental. When when should we expect um, a decision on this case? Uh, when when should we expect some um, some results? Well, the Supreme Court is almost done and decision days in June have been on Mondays and Thursdays. So at this point, by the time you see this, there may have been a verdict or it may be next week, Monday or Thursday. And and if it is a case that they overturn it, what kind of time frame would people who are on Obamacare, how long before it actually cuts their services or would it be almost immediately? Well, that's the question we're all worried about because is the Supreme Court going to stay their decision or is it going to take immediate effect? And a lot of these insurers have it written into their contracts that they can cancel it if if they need to. So we could live in a world where immediately after the Supreme Court strikes down the ACA, people start getting notices from their insurance companies that their policy is canceled. And, and in so many ways, like this, I know there are some negotiating techniques in here that healthcare industries did not like, or pharmaceutical industries may not have liked. But in a lot of ways, this was Obamacare gave a lot of money to insurance companies. Where are they in this fight? Are they just more than happy to take wherever the windfall comes from? Well, the the Affordable Care Act, the Obamacare fight in the first place, it was a deliberate policy choice by the Obama team that they were only gonna fight so many industries at once. So there were giveaways to big pharma, for example, there's no negotiation of prescription drug prices mm. in Medicare and so on. Because Obama was taking on the insurance industry, he didn't wanna also fight with big pharma and the providers and everything else. So like it's some ugly looking sausage sometimes, yeah. but it was it was made up from choices what they needed to do they thought to get it passed. Right. So uh, the insurance companies actually have benefited quite a lot. Uh, that more and more insurance companies are going on the Obamacare markets because they can make a profit there. Yeah. Uh, so. They're going to be unhappy about this, but at the end of the day, insurance will always figure out how to make a buck on your healthcare. <laughs> at the end of the day, insurance will always find a way to make a buck on your healthcare. Laura Packard, founder of Healthcare Voices, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. Pleasure's mine.